Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 26. Genesis 26. We'll be tackling the whole chapter this morning as we walk through the book of Genesis. And again, we are past the account of Abraham's life. We are looking at his son Isaac and uh, and surrounding this account that we'll see in Genesis 26, there is um, even more prominently the account of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. But today's text focuses mostly on Isaac himself. It's, it's basically the one section, one major section of Genesis that really has Isaac and not someone else as the main character. Genesis 26 we see in this in this chapter Isaac really retracing the steps of his father Abraham in, in a variety of ways, like father, like son, both in his interaction with the Lord and his, his interaction uh, with the people surrounding him in the land of promise of Canaan, and then even a little bit in how he uh, has a firstborn son who does not value the promises of God as his father does. So I'm calling this sermon this morning, Isaac and the Peoples of the Land. I said Isaac retraces the steps of his father Abraham here, but as Derek Kidner puts it here, Isaac was called not so much to pioneer, that is, as Abraham did, but to consolidate. So we find him uh, consolidating in a lot of areas where Abraham was a pioneer. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 26. This is God's promise in a land of famine. God's promise in a land of famine, verses 1 through 5, as we look at the account. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will uh, uh, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We'll pause there. So as we break down the account of Genesis 26, Isaac and the peoples of the land, we are looking at God's promise in a land of famine, verses 1 through 5. God instructed Isaac not to go to Egypt in a time of famine, as his father Abraham had done, and as his son Jacob would later do. That's not to say that Abraham and Jacob did wrong, especially since Jacob was simply obeying God's own instructions when he did it. But in Isaac's case, God called him to trust a specific promise that God would prosper him in the very place of famine. But it's also interesting how, oh, 
how God reinforces his promises to Isaac, um, encouraging him that he will be blessed even in this place of famine. God says, I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. So again, this is sort of a yet another deposit down payment on the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham's physical seed in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, rather. <clears throat> and he says, And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Look at this. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. As Richard Belcher says here, Genesis 26.5 presents Abraham as one who obeyed God. This verse looks back to Abraham's obedience at the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, the phrase, obeyed, obeyed my voice, was used back in chapter 22, verse 18, when Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Uh, but Richard Belcher goes on. He says, however, the rest of the verse uses phrases that are prominent later in the law of Moses. That is, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Abraham's obedience is presented as an ideal for Israel, who must observe God's law in the land that God was giving her. End of quote. And I think this is true. As Moses is writing this in Genesis, he is again presenting Isaac as, um, well, rather Abraham rather here, as an ideal for Israel, reminding them that they must obey God's law, uh, his covenant with them, in the land that he was going to give to them. And this is probably the most technical part of the sermon, <laughs> so I... Uh, I'm glad it happens early in the sermon, but uh, here's where it's helpful to pause and carefully understand God's covenant with Abraham. God says that he's going to um, establish the oath he swore to Abraham, Abraham Isaac's father, that he's going to multiply his offspring, and in, in his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All this will happen, God says, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Um, if we're sloppy here, we could get the idea that God is making all his covenants ultimately dependent on our obedient cooperation. I'll do this. I'll fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, essentially, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Well, here's what the Lord is saying to Isaac as he reviews his covenant promises to Abraham. By his grace, God sustained Abraham's faith so that as a federal head, a covenant head of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham passed the test of obedience. And thus, through the means of Abraham's trusting obedience, think of his obedience to the covenant of circumcision, Genesis 17, his obedience in sacrificing Isaac, Genesis 22. Through the means of Abraham's trusting obedience, the blessings promised by God in the Abrahamic covenant were secured. In fact, this is also clear if we go back to two earlier texts. So I'm saying Abraham was in a, um, a special covenantal position here where his obedience was the means God had ordained to secure the blessings of the covenant God made with Abraham. 
Uh, but if we look at two other texts earlier, it says similar things. Genesis 17, 1 through 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that, in order that, I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Or, again, Genesis 22, to which our text refers directly, I think, starting in verse 15 of Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Remember our text in verse 3, the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So notice that unlike some Reformed teaching, I'm actually distinguishing between the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of grace. Abraham is the obedient federal or covenant head of the Abrahamic covenant, but Jesus is the obedient federal head of the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic covenant promised and pointed forward to the grace of that new covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant is not itself that greater covenant of grace. And so in God's unfading plan, Abraham's obedience secured Old Covenant blessings which pointed toward and prepared for Christ's covenant of grace. But if we're talking about the blessings of eternal salvation guaranteed by Christ's covenant of grace, well, in that context, it was Christ's obedience and his alone that secured that, as Romans 5 would tell us. We discussed all this back in Genesis 17, so go back and listen to that sermon again if you need a refresher, Genesis 17, about the covenant sign and seed. But Abraham's federal headship aside, as I said, that's probably the most technical part of this sermon, though it's the important part. Um, all that aside, let's get back to Genesis 26, verse 5. There is also here an implied encouragement to Isaac to follow his father's example of trusting obedience. You know, when we trust and obey, we will experience the richest manifestations of God's faithfulness to his promises. That's the general principle here. As Matthew Henry says, God recommended to him the good example of his father's obedience as that which had preserved the entail of the covenant in his family. End of quote. God is reminding Isaac that Abraham obeyed him and, and <clears throat> had promises secured to him because of that. And the implication is God will likewise bless Isaac if he trusts and obeys, even in a land that's being stricken by famine right now. So again, the, bit, the larger point, God says to Isaac, I don't want you to go down to Egypt this time. Stay in the land of Canaan, even though it's in famine right now. I will bless you. I'll preserve you. So that brings us to verses 6 through 11. Isaac's lie to the people of the land. Isaac's lie to the people of the land. Starting in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. 
Remember Gerar from earlier chapters where Abraham interacted with Abimelech, the king of Gerar? Verse 7, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. We'll talk about that word for laughing. <laughs> um, we'll talk about it. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, here we go again. Isaac repeats the lie of his father Abraham, though in Isaac's case the lie was, was not even a half-truth. <laughs> in Abraham's case, at least Sarah actually was his half-sister. He was just hiding the convenient truth that she was also his wife. But in Isaac's case, Rebekah isn't even his sister in any sense. He's just lying flat out. And in this case, no one actually took Isaac's wife for himself. Notice that. No one made off with Rebekah, even when they thought she was Isaac's sister. But Isaac has to learn some of the same lessons about unbelieving fear as his father Abraham had. And he's prone to a similar sin as his father was. It's not to say that will always be the case from father to son, but, but it's not unusual either. It says that after Isaac had announced to everyone that Rebekah was his sister, they stayed there a long time in that area. And when he had been there a long time, it says, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window. He just happened to look out a palace window, it sounds like, and saw Isaac, our ESV has, laughing with Rebekah, his wife. I think the old King James says something like, Sporting with Isaac, his uh, Isaac sporting with his wife Rebecca. Uh, as Andrew Steinman says in his commentary, this word for, translated by the ESV laughing. It's a common verb in Genesis, occurring ten times there out of a total of twelve times in the entire Old Testament. Its basic meaning is laugh. However, it can be used in a what's called a causative conjugation, the PL in Hebrew, <clears throat> to mean amuse. It can mean to amuse in the senses of jesting, like joking, mocking, like Ishmael did to Isaac, <laughs> acts of a sexual nature, or performance, when uh, the Philistines had Samson come out to amuse them in the Temple of Dagon. So here, clearly, it's not just that Isaac is laughing with Rebekah. Uh, they are having a good time in a way that only a man and wife should. <laughs> and Abimelech sees this. And he is alerted to the fact that Rebekah is certainly more than Isaac's sister to him. She is his wife. And at least Isaac is, is honest about why he lied. He was afraid. 
She had the same fear Abraham had had. His wife, Rebecca, was so beautiful, he was, um, he was afraid that the men of the place would kill him to have Rebecca. That didn't happen. Um, but, and, but as we, as we say, as we said, it, it didn't even happen that someone took Rebecca because when they thought that she was just Isaac's sister. So Isaac's relationship with uh, Abimelech and his people and Gerar doesn't get off to a great start here. But Abimelech warns all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. That brings us to verses 12 through 25, Isaac's conflict with the people of the land. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Notice that here that though Isaac was a nomad, he began putting down roots to the extent of actually planting and harvesting crops. He sowed in that land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold, an enormous crop in a time of famine. Reading on, the Lord blessed him, verse 13, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. <coughs> so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not. For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. <clears throat> John Currid notes, It's ironic that Isaac became so wealthy during times of famine. Normally at such times people scrape by and struggle to maintain a moderate level of existence. But we need to understand that God is not bound by nature, and certainly famine does not control him. And so we read that when Isaac planted seed, Yahweh blessed him, and his crops increased 100 times. Is that not true of the church throughout history, that sometimes God's greatest gifts and mercies come to his people during times of great earthly peril? End of quote. God was good to his word. His word was good. He, he did bless Isaac in a land of famine. But 
Isaac's prosperity provoked the Philistines' envy. And envy brings conflict. Steinman mentions that the Philistines' vandalism of the wells Abraham had dug negated the agreement made between the earlier Abimelech and Abraham. By the way, I, I forgot to mention, this Abimelech in this text is long enough later that he's probably a different king than the Abimelech with whom Abraham dealt. Um, in these days, especially in dynasties of kings, often they would share the same name uh, through various generations. This does, so this wouldn't be unusual. This is probably a different person than the Abimelech Abraham met. But reading on what Steinman says, he says, Perhaps because Abraham was a resident alien, the Philistines felt no obligation to honor the treaty beyond Abraham's lifetime, not recognizing a right of inheritance in this case. But we see Isaac going back to the wells that his father had dug and reclaiming them, as it were. <clears throat> and, he, and he names them the names that his father had given to them. Again, John Currid, the naming of something often indicates authority over the object. By giving them names... Isaac is claiming ownership of the wells. A confrontation is bound to ensue because the Philistines had stopped up the wells in order to drive out Isaac from the region. So we have these, these other wells also um, that Isaac tries to dig, even some of them probably fresh wells, um, new wells, completely new. Isek means argument because there was an argument with the herdsmen of, of Gerar, over it. Sitna means hostility. But then, verse 22, when it says, he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means open spaces. Note here that in the midst of conflict with envious rivals, Isaac did not always insist on strict, immediate justice or retribution. He waited on the Lord to make room for him. Isaac was basically a man of peace, even when he was greatly provoked. We should do the same as God's people. But then in verse 23, where it says, From there he went up to Beersheba, it says, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. The Lord loves to show up and reassure his people when they are facing contentious foes and just reiterate his promises to them. We'll come back to that in the application later. Now we come to verses 26 through 33. Isaac's covenant with the people of the land. And remember, this comes after his conflict with the people of the land. But the Lord turns the heart of the king in any direction he wishes, and he does so in this case. So we see Isaac's covenant with the people of the land, starting in verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath his advisor and Phicol the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. 
So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, <laughs> right, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Covenants were often um, concluded and sealed in connection with a feast, a meal. Verse 31. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that uh, they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Now, Abraham had already named the place Beersheba, but apparently, um, again, Isaac uses uh, this name, which, which could either be understood as seven, or it could be understood as a name for a covenant, an oath. Um, and so the name Beersheba really sticks after twice that name being associated with it, first by Abraham, then by Isaac. Derek Kidner mentions that, that by his initial frankness, verse 27, and his subsequent restraint in passing over the effrontery of the end of verse 29, Isaac was able to make peace with honor. So he had an initial frankness. Isaac, when the Philistines come, come uh, somewhat meekly to him, Isaac says, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? <clears throat> He's frank with them. But then he exercises restraint, even when the Philistines paint themselves in a better light than they really probably should. <clears throat> uh, so he was able to make peace with honor. Reminds me of what Jesus said about um, how the peacemakers will be blessed. <laughs> I think Isaac here models what Proverbs 19, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It doesn't seem that Isaac really insisted on totally setting the record straight here. He was, he was meek. Uh, frank in the beginning, but still, still very, very meek and mild toward these people that had been such a problem toward him, that had treated him so badly. But thinking of the Philistines here, people of Gerar, notice how the opponents of God's people often hide insecurity behind loud aggression. They're, they're loudly aggressive against God's people because they're, they're really hiding their own insecurities sometimes. Isaac's prosperity simply made the Philistines envious and nervous. That's why they kept starting quarrels with him. In this case, though, God caused the Philistines to eventually replace that aggression with the frank acknowledgement that Isaac had God's blessing. Similarly, Jesus spoke to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, 
The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. So he's talking about the Jewish synagogue in town that was so aggressive against the church. The church said, said that it was the true inheritor of Abraham's um, eternal promises. And the Jews would say, no, we're the true Jews. But they were not spiritual children of Abraham. So it's talking about these, these envious, aggressive people in the Jewish synagogue who were enemies of the cross of Christ. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. God doesn't always do this, particularly in this life. He always does it eventually, at least in the life to come. But even sometimes in this life, God brings it about that he... He softens the hearts of his people's enemies so that they replace their aggression with frankly acknowledging God's blessing these people. And we want we want a part of that in some way. God loves these people and we can't fight it. Well, back in Genesis 26, it's interesting the wording Again, John Currid, in verse 27, Isaac had accused the Girarites of being hostile to him and then of having sent him out. Now, in reverse, Isaac sent them out, this time not in animosity, but in peace. So even the very wording here shows what a turn of events this was. Now, Isaac is the one allowing the Philistines to depart, but this time on good terms. It's also interesting to note, as Richard Belcher does here, that um, in showing how much God blessed Isaac and material wealth, one also sees how large the birthright was that Esau sold for a pot of stew. That That's in the context. You realize right before chapter 26, that's what happened. Esau despised his birthright. He bartered it off just for, for a bowl of stew he wanted right then from Jacob. Speaking of Esau, that's how this chapter ends, which is 34 through 35. We see, as Isaac is navigating relations with the people of the land, we see Esau's union with daughters of the land. And this is not a good thing. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Despite God's blessing on Isaac, his firstborn and favorite son continued to disregard the ways of the godly. Esau heeded his own selfish desires rather than his father's example of godliness. So Esau thus continued to prove himself a profane man. This prepares us 
for the next chapter, where we'll see Esau providentially rejected from obtaining Isaac's blessing. Well, again, we will come back to that in the into Esau's actions here. We'll, we'll touch on it again in the application. But that's the account from this text. Genesis chapter 26. And this chapter is full of parallels between Isaac's experiences and those of his father Abraham. I hope you caught those as we went. Uh, pretty obvious. Abraham's temptation to lie about his wife being his sister. Um, God's promises to Abraham and then to Isaac. Abraham uh, in his his dealings and sometimes contentions with the people of Gerar and with uh, a king named Abimelech. Abraham had a firstborn son, Ishmael, who who didn't um, who wasn't totally on board with God's covenant promises, and so in Abraham's experience, his firstborn son Ishmael mocked the child of promise, Isaac. In this case, Isaac's firstborn son, uh, in his own way, despises the promises, despises the fact that uh, the Lord intends Abraham's people to be separate from the people of the land, from the Canaanites and their idolatrous ways. Esau marries into idolatrous Canaan, because that's what he wants to do. And it makes life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So, Chapter is full of parallels between Isaac's experiences and those of his father Abraham. So here's the big idea, I think, from this text. Each generation of God's people must embrace his promises in a precarious world. Each generation of God's people must embrace his promises in a precarious world. The previous generation cannot do this for you. You must walk the path of faith yourself, as was true of Isaac as well. So let's get in, into the application of this big idea that each generation of God's people must embrace his promises in a precarious world. First of all, embrace God's promises in the midst of your hardships. Though his father Abraham had gone to Egypt in similar circumstances, Isaac was told by the Lord to stay put right in the middle of famine. And the Lord rehearsed his promises to give Isaac the confidence to stay put. Later, God would tell Isaac's son Jacob to go to Egypt to escape famine, but that was not his plan for Isaac. Likewise, God may call us to do even harder things than he required of previous generations, or than he may require of future generations, or than he may require of our fellow pilgrims. We each will have our own hardships, and we must each trust and obey God in our own unique circumstances. Reminds me of John 21, verses 15 through 22, where Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter, and uh, he's restoring Simon Peter after... Peter had denied him three times the night of his trial. He says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, more than all the rest of the disciples? Peter had promised that though they had all abandoned Jesus, he would never do that. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, Apostle John, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't complain that it's not fair, that you have to do hard things other people don't have to do for Christ. Actually, you can bear outstanding fruit for God in spite of and even because of your particular hardships. That's what the churches of Macedonia did, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. These churches were poor. They were in, Paul says, a severe test of affliction, and yet... They had a unique opportunity to still give to the poor saints elsewhere out of their own poverty. So Paul picks up on this again next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And, and think about how this applied in Isaac's story and in the Macedonian story and how it can apply in our story if we are in a severe test of affliction. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, and he quotes a psalm that we'll reference again later, He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Speaking of the godly man. And so Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Just as God multiplied Isaac's seed for sowing, even during famine, and increased his harvest, so God will do that in a spiritual sense for his people all the time, if they trust him. 
And this isn't just about finances. It's about whatever good works God has for you to do, even when you're in a tough spot. You can experience the heights and depths of God's love in Christ, whatever your hardships may be. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. But we have to hurry on to the next point of application, and that is this. Embrace God's promises rather than your fears. Embrace God's promises rather than your fears. Isaac was afraid that people would kill him to have his wife, Rebekah. And so he lied to protect himself from that hypothetical scenario. Which fears tempt you to act as if God cannot or will not protect you? Fear of financial ruin? Fear of family? Fear of your employer? Maybe fear of public embarrassment? Fear of a personal enemy, maybe. Maybe it's fear of being misunderstood or misrepresented. Or fear of sickness. Maybe fear of harassment in some way. Maybe fear of tragedy for your loved ones. Maybe it's the fear of death. Well, God's promises are more than a match for our fears. You know Psalm 23, I'm sure. Psalm 23, starting in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, speaking to Yahweh, the Lord, who is his shepherd, he says, For you, Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God sets the feast, even when we are surrounded by enemies. <clears throat> you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, or, sure, or goodness and steadfast love, shall follow me, pursue me, all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's going to be the end of our story if we belong to Christ as our good shepherd. But speaking of a table being set in the presence of our enemies... That brings us to the third application. And that is to embrace God's promises in the presence of your enemies. Remember when Isaac was constantly having run-ins with the locals just because he needed water for his people and flocks. It seemed as if these envious, petty Philistines would never leave him alone. Remember when that was the case. It says he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night. He had a vision from the Lord. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for, your servant, for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there. He again set up a place of worship and a memorial, as it were. 
he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. With this reassurance from God, Isaac just kept digging wells. He kept pressing forward. The Lord does love to show up and reinforce his promises to his people when they are facing contentious foes. <clears throat> this reminded me this week of two texts in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul. First of all, Acts 18, when Paul is in Corinth, and he, um, he's been testifying to the Jews in their synagogue that, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus, but then it says they opposed and reviled him, and he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul is facing much opposition, but there is fruit, and yet Paul has enemies now, right next door, literally. The next verse says, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, that is, the Lord, Lord Jesus appeared to Paul, as he appeared to Isaac. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Or there's another time when Paul was almost torn to pieces when he appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Council of Elders, um, and his hearing did not go well, though he got some on his side initially, but he had to be taken away by force by the Roman soldiers to be protected. And this is after he was almost killed in the temple under false charges. Paul had enemies who were out to get him. And in the next verses, some Jews will make a plot, <clears throat> excuse me, some Jews will make a plot and bind themselves with an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. But it's right then in that in that dire situation, Acts twenty three eleven, where it says this: The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, "Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." The Lord showed up. He stood by him and encouraged him and said, "My plan is right on track. Take courage. Again, don't be afraid." Let's turn to Psalm 37, if you have your Bible. Psalm 37. We quoted, uh, this was quoted when we were in 2 Corinthians 9, 9 a moment ago. Psalm 37, the whole psalm is worth just reading at this point. About the fact that God will not forsake his, his saints. Uh, it contrasts the godly with evildoers. The evildoers and godless people may be envious of the godly, but the godly should not be envious of the godless. <clears throat> we should not get frustrated. We should follow Isaac's example in not getting frustrated when godless people um, are, are, are giving us problems. <laughs> or when it seems like they are unjustly 
prospering when we um, are struggling. Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. He'll give you justice. He'll vindicate you, is the idea. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. When they're stealing your wells, let's say. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. That's what Jesus quotes in the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the earth. He's quoting here. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The wicked grinds his teeth in frustration, trying to get the righteous sometimes. But, verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. Sound like Isaac? But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. He is unjust in his dealings. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously. Here's 2 Corinthians 9. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. 
The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. You may think that's a long psalm which says the same thing over and over. Well, yes, I believe in the original it's a Hebrew acrostic going through letters of the alphabet, I believe, uh, at the start of each verse. <clears throat> but it, it makes the point over and over to be sure we get the point. We must embrace God's promises even in the presence of our enemies. Even when godless people seem somewhat threatening. Fourth application. Embrace God's promises instead of godless alliances. This is the last application. And of course, we have to think about Esau again here. We've been talking about trusting in the Lord and putting all our eggs in that basket and <laughs> entrusting our, our lives in every sense to God and letting him work for us. But like Esau, some of you may have decided that it doesn't pay to be God's friend. Or at least you think that you must also be friends with the godless world to have prosperity and peace and joy. Perhaps you want to attend church on Sunday, but do everything the world enjoys on Monday. Perhaps you're embarrassed of how the world perceives serious Christians. So you want to get popular friends by keeping the faith to yourself. Or maybe you'll slide into some sort of progressive Christianity that can be both self-righteous and trendy without ever upsetting a secular culture. Perhaps you're willing to cut corners on God's commands in order to please certain people. Perhaps you want to keep your Christianity, but also pursue a romance with someone who lives for other things. You want God and the world in all these cases, but that simply won't work. You must choose between God and the world. James 4.4 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility, with God? <clears throat> Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul had to say to the church in Corinth, who were listening to a lot of bad input that they had because of relationships with people they should have rejected. <laughs> he had to say in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. They were restricted when their affections should have been wide open to Paul as a true preacher of the gospel. Why was that? Well, they had relationships with, with unbelievers that were compromising them. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's quoting the Old Testament promises to redeem Zion, to, to Israel. And saying we are that New Testament, New Covenant Israel of God to whom God made these promises. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, you have a choice. Whether to rest all your hopes on the one who is the true God and eternal life, or whether to invest in what feels like the good life now. Don't be like Esau and sell your soul for a selfish cruise on easy street. So I, I'll end with Jesus' words in Luke 6, verses 20-26. This is such a wonderful contrast between his true disciples and those who are comfortable in this life. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, Luke 6.20, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Please, may it have the proper effect in those who hear it, either today or later as they listen. Lord, help us to be content and satisfied with you as our God and our provider and our protector. And may we look nowhere else for what we should find in you alone. And if anyone listening or watching does not have you as their God, open their heart to you today so that they would turn to you in repentant faith through your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in the place of sinners and died the death that sinners deserve so that they could be reconciled to God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.